Welcome to Kingdom Perspective Broadcast, the teaching ministry of Dr. David Ogaga. We believe that this message is going to open up the seals and cause you to have a deeper revelation into the Word of God that will make you see beyond the letters in the Word. Here is Dr. David. Let's exhort your name. We come once again, Father, to look into the perfect word of liberty. We ask the Lord for wisdom. We ask for understanding. With the mind that you grant us revelation. And that will Lord, which we are going to consider. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we continue with our study on the finished word of Christ. We're asking the question, what does it really mean when we talk about the finished work of Christ? And that is where we started last week. And so this is going to be part two of that study. Um, we have to read our text, which is John 19, I'm going to read from verse 28. John 19, from verse 28. Here the Bible is saying, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled up a sponge with the vinegar, and put it upon high soap, and put it into his mouth. And verse 30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So that's what we're looking at. What does it mean? When Jesus said it is finished, what was he referring to? Well, like I said last week, the common understanding is everything about salvation is finished. When Jesus said it is finished. So all you need to do is just believe into everything that God has. Well, that's true to an extent, but looking at the scripture, we're discovering that Jesus did not finish everything on the cross because salvation goes beyond just what happened on the cross. Amen? And uh, I try to make us understand, we must again look at the ultimate purpose of God in the creation of man. When God created man, he said, let them have dominion over everything. I will remember that the very being that was to have dominion was not the fallen Adam. The man that was having dominion is the man that was in image and likeness of God. If we understand that, I will be able to see that the cross did not finish the whole process. The cross is a process to the finishing. Amen? Right. The cross essentially have to deal with the issue of the fallen Adam. But on the other side of the cross, we have the re-Christ, if I may use the word, which is the re-man. Anyway, let's just move on. So the finished work of Christ, as people often proclaimed, um, they intend to say, or they, they mean to say, everything that happened on the cross of Calvary is all that needed to be done by God. But that, I said, is not true to the scriptures, as if nothing is left undone. That is not accurate to say that all that happened on the cross is all that God intended to do, and nothing else is left. I tried to point out last week. If you take time to remember, if you can remember very well, that, you see, you were not born again by the cross. 
the event of the cross is not what gave birth to you. What gave birth to you is the event on Pentecost. You understand what I mean? When the Holy Spirit comes to unite with your spirit, that's where you were born again. And, and, and the Holy Spirit was not poured out on the cross. It was poured out after 50 days of Jesus' resurrection. You understand what I mean? Right. So, that will tell you that what the cross did was the process of the redemption of man. So, I am saying that salvation did not end in Calvary. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He wasn't by any means proclaiming that the whole work of redemption and restoration was finished. Not at all. The only things that was finished at the cross was his death, like I said last week, the shedding of his precious blood, and nothing more. These are just the things that was accomplished on the cross. So we begin to see what the blood was supposed to do for us. Praise the living God. Again, we read, I mentioned something to you in relation to what was on even before this time. Even in the days of Jesus. Jesus was not the first man that used the word, it is finished. Maybe we didn't understand. I, I tried to make you understand that the Roman soldiers, the generals, when war is going on, they climb up to a high spot, begin to look down. And when the last enemy drops, he shouts, it is finished. And so, when that happened, the full soldiers realized that the war had been accomplished. Amen? So in that regard, you begin to see that basically what Jesus did was demolishing or destroying the power of Satan, which is the enemy, on the cross. Hallelujah. Now, again, we look at John 17, verse number 1. He said, This word spake Jesus, John 17, verse number 1, and lift up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, and that thy Son may glorify thee. And he said, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that thou might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The verse 4 is the key. He said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou givest me to do. I have finished the work which thou givest me to do. So now, when he says, I have glorified thee, our Lord here actually is considering himself as already sacrificed for the sins of the world. Remember what he said in the book of Hebrews. He said in the volume of the book, it me to do thy will, O Lord. What was the will of the Lord for him? Is to go to the cross. You remember he prayed in Gethsemane. If it please thee, take this cup from me. But our ask, may thy will be done. Remember that? The will is you have to go to the cross. So when he said that, which you have given to me to do the work, is finished, you are referring to the sacrifice for which purpose he came. 
that will lead to the entire redemption of mankind. So here we find that Jesus speaking about the sins of the world, speaks of having completed the work which God has given him to do, and he looks forward to that time when through the preaching of his gospel, his sacrifice should be acknowledged, and the true God should be made known and worshipped by the whole world. This is what he meant when he said, I've glorified thee, and I've finished the work which thou given me to do. The insane thing there is the cross. Okay, we're going to look at something. In Exodus 12, verse 13, let's look at something very essential here. I think it's very critical. Exodus 12, verse 13, the Bible says, And the blood shall be upon you for a token, upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the place shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smile the land of Egypt. You remember that? When they were to leave Egypt. So, what was the essential thing that the blood did? The blood identified those who were Israelites in Egypt so that the angel of death would not destroy them. Is that okay? Right. So the blood was like taking them from one life or one realm to another life. And so you can find that in Colossians chapter 1, 12, 13 when he says, will be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. It was a division. It was a separation. I want you to get that. Praise the living God. But like I said last week, you remember, even when they left Egypt, that was not the end of the journey. They left Egypt, they have to cross the Red Sea, they have to get to Cadiz uh, Bania, they have to get down to the Promised Land. It's all a journey. Is that okay? The cross does not end the journey. The blood did not end the journey in Egypt. The blood was the beginning of the journey to the Promised Land. You follow what I'm talking about? Alright. Now, verse, verse 15 says something here that I would like us to read. I mean, in Exodus 23. Look at verse 14. Exodus 23, verse 14. And this is what it says. Three times that shall keep a feast unto me in the year. I want you to note it because it's very important. Then verse 15 says, That shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt not eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month Abib. For in it thou comest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. The feast of unleavened bread. Is that okay? Now, verse 16 says, and the, the feast of harvest, the first fruit of their labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. So, there were three major feasts that Israel was celebrating, which typified our journey of salvation. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy 16, you see the same thing. Deuteronomy 16, verse number 16. And that's what it says. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of all living bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of what? Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before me, I mean, appear before the Lord empty. And I want you to know that again. Here it talks about three feasts which you read in Exodus 23. He was just trying to repeat the whole stuff for them again. 
Three times in a year you should come to me. The first one which speaks of the Feast of the Living Bread is the same feast which is called the Feast of Pentecost. I mean, the Feast of Passover. Is that okay? And then you realize that Jesus had to absorb the Passover before going to the cross. Is that okay? Good. It was a common feast that they were celebrating that shows how that God brought them out of Egypt. Praise the living God. All right. Then the second feast was the feast of first fruit, which is equally called the feast of Pentecost. Is that okay? Right. Before you go to the feast of Tabernacles. So these three feasts actually speaks about the full redemption of mankind. The first one is you receive the blood, you become a believer, and then you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're born again, and then you must move on onto the place of the redemption of your body. That is what he called the Feast of Tabernacles. Is that okay? That's the fullness at the end of the journey. But anyway, let us progress. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 7. 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 7. And this is what he says. Pour thou therefore that old living. Remember he said we must not eat the bread with living bread. I mean we should eat living bread. When he said in the book of Exodus, right? Now, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Pour thou therefore the old living, that ye may be a new lamb, as ye are unleavened. Now, living is not adding. Living is, is equal to sin. Is that okay? Are you listening to me? Then he said, For even Christ, our Passover, listen to this, is sacrificed for us. Even Christ, our Passover. So the essence of the sacrifice is Passover. It's like leaving Egypt now, journeying to the promised land. So when you, when you receive Christ, you believe in the sacrifice, you pass over, as it were, from Egypt and you're moving on to Canaan. You've left the world, you've come into God's camp. You getting that? Praise the Lord. Okay. Then verse 8 says, in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with all living, neither with the living of malice and wickedness, but with the old living bread of sincerity and truth. So, he began to tell us how we need to observe this feast. Praise the living God. You know, so, what he means is, remember, when we were living in Egypt, you don't have to eat the bread with living. You eat it an living thing. I mean... With bitter heads, as you live in Egypt. Is that okay? He said, Now, when you come to Christ, you receive Him. He's telling us that Christ, our sacrifice, has been sacrificed for us. Our Passover. He is the Passover because it was the Passover in Egypt when the blood was sprinkled. Is that okay? Of the Lamb. Good. So now, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed for us. So we need to believe into this blood to come out of the world perfect. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's exactly what we're talking about. But the next thing we see here, let me just interject this now. For you who have become a believer, in partaking of Passover, he is also saying, there are some things you must not do. Don't add living to the living Lord which you are. And what he tried to describe there is, lying, I mean, things like malice, Things like wickedness, any of those stuff, he calls them living. Is that okay? Right. So, all of those attitudes that you could have against your neighbor, against your wife, against your husband, 
the Bible calls them living. And he said, you must not celebrate this feast. The answer said, we celebrate this feast every day. It's not just once like it was done before. Because if he's saying, don't celebrate with malice. It's not like saying, well, only when you want to celebrate. That's where I think people come to the place of the Holy Communion and they say, well, if you don't quarrel with anybody, if you're not done this, you can eat. But if you have this, you cannot eat. You know, but no, 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 no. It ought to be a daily life. No malice, no wickedness. Every day you celebrate the feast. It's your life. Praise the living God. All right. So, in answer, what we just read there is, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Is that okay? So, we're moving out. Now, where was that down on the cross? So, go with me to Isaiah 53 now, and that's number 5. Isaiah 53, verse number 5. And this is what it says. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Amen? Alright. Then verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was brought to the cross as a lamb, just like we find the lamb in Egypt. Which is a possible lamb. Are you listening to me? Alright. I want you to pick this because it's very important. Because there's something I want us to see as we go on. When we talk about the finished work, we're going to touch it. But when we talk about the finished work, the way we preach it, we think Jesus, for instance, Jesus did not finish that which is called the moral laws. We have to think about that as we begin to deal with it as we're moving on. He never finished the moral laws. Um, I have to explain something now for you to pick it. Maybe it's going to help you to appreciate it when we get there. Jesus did not finish your obligation to your wife or to your master or to your husband. The law says, wife, submit to your husband. It's a word. It's a law. And husband, love your wife. Children, obey your parents. Thou shalt not kill. It's a law. Even though Jesus had gone to the cross, he did not end that even as it is. Because if you kill today, you're still going to pay the penalty of killing. Am I correct? So what do you think you finish? Why do you say everything is finished? No. We must understand what is finished. Okay, anyway, we'll get it to you see clearly. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, the Bible says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So this is critical for us to also appreciate. He died, he rose. 
Resurrection is not part of the cross. I don't know if you're getting this. Good. He died, yes, that is the cross. He was buried. He rose. The journey continues. So what finished? You tell me what finished on the cross. Because we're all shouting, it is finished, it is finished. What finished? Hallelujah. It is his resurrection that finally depicts what your faith really is, that brings you into the place of the realization of his inheritance. Not just the cross. The cross is basically the forgiveness of your sins. That you begin your journey as a new law. Okay. Go into Romans 4 verse 25. Look at what it says here. Romans 4 25. Who was delivered for our offenses. And was raised again for our justification. Hallelujah. So you watch this. When he died, it was for our offenses. But when he rose, it's for our justification. Now, we are not justified on the cross. We are justified through his resurrection. I don't know if you are getting this. Praise the living God. Who was delivered for our offenses? He was delivered up to death as a sacrifice for our sins. That's what he's talking about. For in whatever way or for whatever purpose could he, who is innocent, himself be delivered for our offenses? He was delivered, like we read in the book of Isaiah 53. He was an innocent man. There was no sin in him. And I'm going to explain why it has to be so. Because you see, anyway, let me just move on. And again we said then, I was raised again for justification. What's justification here? It was raised that we might have the fullest assurance that the death of Christ has accomplished the end for which it took place. That is our reconciliation to God and giving us a right to that eternal life into which he has entered and taken us with him our human nature as the first fruit of the resurrection of all mankind. The ultimate purpose of that very world, of what was accomplished on that cross, was what? Reconciliation. You know, as we always say, when man sinned, there was a kind of separation between man and God. Not necessarily so, but because in the heart of man, he feels he was separated from God. Are you there with me? You can find that with the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son felt he was separated. But his father was still having his heart towards him. That is the way it was in the case of Adam. If you really look at that story properly, when Adam fell, as it were, and God came and said, Adam, where are you? It's like he was still looking for him. Like the prodigal son father was searching or waiting for him to return. The simple question is, Adam, what is now your condition? His response with, we have sinned and we are naked. 
And the next question is, who told you you are naked? How did you know you are naked? You say you are naked. Are you done with me? Alright, anyway, let's leave that. But I want you to get this. The key point is what? Reconciliation. The enmity that was there between God and man was broken when Jesus went to the cross. Now, the Bible tells us as his death was an atonement for our sin, so his resurrection was the proof and pledge of our eternal life. Is that okay? His death was the atonement. I'm going to explain that a little bit. The death was the atonement. It was the thing that brought God and man together. You can separate those two words. Atonement. It's like saying at oneness. Coming together. Becoming one with God again. Two enemies be reconciled. That's what the cross did. Praise the Lord. Verse 3. Or like we look at. Listen for that passage alone. You have a lot of things that comes out. First of all, there we talk about the issue of reconciliation. We talk about justification. And again, the next thing you see along that line is the doctrine of justification by faith, which we always preach, or men have always preached, which is actually so nobly proved in the preceding chapter. Let's look at the next chapter we're looking at. Begin to tell you how that you have been justified by faith. Even talking about the issue of Abraham. This is one of the greatest displays of the masses of God towards mankind. By implication, like the scripture we say, if sin abound, grace abound much more. Is that okay? Right. So the glory and the, I mean, the mercy of God supersede the power of grace in this content when he went to the cross. Hallelujah. So it's very plain that all may comprehend or understand what happened on the cross. The kind of mercy that God revealed. In other words, as soon as the cross took place or the, the Calvary issue comes up, the next thing is like God is beckoning to man to come back to me. Come to me. Reconciliation has taken place because what I wanted I've gotten, in quotes. Is that okay? Right. So, man in this context is free. Free again, we must understand, free from the law, free from the power of the enemy. Remember, the Bible tells us of men who walk under the influence of the power of the enemy, according to Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air, right? But now you are free from those things. Alright. Again, we find that you, as a sinner, in consequence, were condemned to death. That's the point. And completely unable to save your own soul. Why was the cross? I'm just trying to look at that. Man has sinned, and the next thing that was followed the sin was what? Death. It says the wages of sin is what? A death. And he told Adam, the day you ate of that tree, you shall surely do what? Die. So man is now in the place to die, and now he cannot save himself. Amen? So we find that all men are in the same state with you, and no one can give a ransom for the soul of his neighbor. In other words, all mankind have sinned. We have the same, you know, in terms of the offense, 
equal level. Right? In terms of whatever nature we have, we have the same nature. Therefore, we are not qualified to save another man. By implication, your neighbor can save you because he has the same corrupt nature that you have in by reason of the fall of Adam. Meaning, we will require somebody who do not have our nature of a corrupt nature like Adam to die in our place so that we can be free from the corruption that leads to death. Does it make sense for you? Good. Alright. So now, this is why a Savior has to provide it in the place of Jesus. When you say Savior, now you have to understand what you are saved from. You are saved from death. What was the reason for the death? Sin. For what? The wages of sin is death. Now we need a Savior who can save us from the condemnation that was supposed to come by reason of the consequences of sin. That's why Jesus is your Savior. Are you there with me? Right. So just as your life was forfeited to death, remember this, because of your transgression, Jesus Christ has redeemed us and gave us life by giving us his own life. But there's something very special about this. Listen to what I'm trying to say here. When you die by reason of sin, you forfeited your life. Is that okay? Good. You forfeited your life. The moment you get into sin and the next sin is death, you see you have no life. Good. Now, Jesus took that. But there's something special about the case of Jesus. He did not only give out his life, he also took it. Which is what you cannot do. Now, you can find out. I think, let me go down and be able to show you. In the book of John. John chapter 10 in particular, he said, I lay down my life and I take it again. How many of you remember that? But as far as you were concerned, as far as your life was concerned, you do not have power to take back your life. You forfeited your life through sin to eternal death, as it were. Praise the living God. So Jesus Christ has redeemed us Gave us life by giving of his own. He died in our stead and made an atonement to God for our transgression and offered us a pardon he has to purchase. On the simple condition that we will believe that his faith, I mean his death, is a sufficient sacrifice, ransom, and oblation for our sins. Once we can believe that, that will come from the other side of death unto life. So, and this guarantees us the access to the throne of grace by faith as the blood pleads on our behalf. And in doing this by faith, in the sacrifice, we don't receive an imputed righteousness. That is, this belief and this condition we are coming into, the ability and the, the you see, when your conscience becomes free, that you cannot talk to God. Is that okay? Now, that process by which he died, you accepted that, we are receiving imputed what? Righteousness. Meaning, we are receiving salvation, which Christ has bought with his blood. Praise the Lord. Alright. Now, the fourth thing again I want us to deal with here, in just this passage, is the issue of imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, essentially, what this was supposed to be, or the way it is taught, is that we have received righteousness of Christ, which is true. It will be made, we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Second Corinthians 5 says that. 
Is that okay? But that's part of what I want to make you understand here. In terms of that which is called the finished work, the way people teach it, the way we have been taught in the church. Now, essentially what the scripture says is imputed to us the righteousness or faith in righteousness. How do I put it now? Faith is righteousness or the righteousness of faith. Now listen to what I'm saying. Righteousness of faith. That is your faith in what you have done makes you righteous. Is that okay? Right. It's just like the Bible says, Abraham is believing God was credited to him for what? Righteousness. Right. So your belief in the finished work in terms of the sacrifice on the cross makes you righteous. Are you done with me? Alright. But I want us to know this. There is no scripture that says Christ's obedience to the moral laws is imputed to any man. By implication, I want you to understand what I'm saying here. I'm trying to be very slow so that I can understand it. There is no scripture Right? Now tell us that Christ's obedience to the moral law is imputed to any man. No. The truth is, the moral law was broken and did not now require obedience but death. What I mean is this. The moral law was broken, so it was not obedience that was needed, it was death. That man was qualified for. Since we broke the law, we were qualified for death, not obedience. So Jesus' obedience to the law does not deliver us. I don't know if I get what I'm talking about. Fine. So we are not justified in his obedience to the moral law. No. I want you to get that. Because we are qualified for death. That just, that's what it means. It required obedience before it was broken. The law required obedience before it was broken. But after it was broken, it required death. So now, you turn to the question of what we can do to be free by obeying law. The law is already broken. We are qualified for death. So Jesus came and obeyed. The obedience is not what justified us. What justified us is what? His death. I don't know if you are getting this. Alright. Now, it is like either a sinner must die or someone must die in his place. That's all. We are not talking about obedience anymore. Because the law has been broken. And so you must die. Amen? Good. But there was none whose death could have been in equivalent for the transgressors of the one I mean, of the world, except that of Christ. Nobody was qualified to die the death that we were supposed to die. Because like I said in the very beginning, all of us have the same nature. All of us, we are sinners. There was no way you are going to offer the blood of a sinner to redeem a sinner. So you can't redeem yourself because you're not qualified. Your neighbor cannot redeem you because he's not even qualified as well. So somebody else has to do that. Who have a pure blood, not contaminated, not a partaker of the Adamic life. And that's why Jesus had to come in. 
and die in our place. So in our belief of his death in our place is what justifies us. It's what brought now in that conviction of faith, the right of the witness of faith is that we believe that he died in our place. And I've always said before, it's always a difficult thing to come to this conclusion. But it's so easy for you to believe that you are a sinner. I don't know if you understand what I mean here. Listen, faith is either positive or negative. Am I right? So now, you have faith that you are a sinner because you believe. <laughs> Somebody said you are a sinner and you believe it. That is faith. Because faith comes by hearing. Is that okay? So you have faith that you are a sinner because you believe. But now, to have faith that you are righteous is a problem. Because you always believe no man is righteous. In fact, the scripture that man will quote for you is, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if, you, if it took you by faith to believe that you are a sinner, why can't you reverse it by the same faith to know that you are now what? Righteous. That's why it's called imputed righteousness by faith. Praise the living God. All right. Now, Jesus therefore died for man's sin, and it is through his blood, the merit of his passion and death, that we have redemption, and not by his obedience to the moral law in our stead. He never obey any law on your behalf. By implication, whether you are a believer now or not, you still need to obey laws. I don't know if you are getting what I'm trying to say. Right. It did not... So, listen. When you say it is finished... It doesn't mean you can break laws. Because he did not obey laws so that you don't obey laws. No. He died so that you don't die. But when it comes to the issue of obeying laws, which are the moral laws, it is your responsibility. So Jesus' sacrifice did not touch your obedience of a moral law. I don't know if I get what I'm saying now. I want you to pick it because it's very critical. Listen and listen closely. The work is finished. Yes, we know. I am saying, when we broke the law, the first time, in Adam, as it were, we qualify for death. Is that okay? Nobody was able to deliver us from that. Jesus had to come to deliver us from that. Jesus obeyed, but not in your stead. He did not obey in your place. He died in your place. Because what we are qualified for, God was not looking for obedience from you anymore. You already, you've already disobeyed. You've already died, as it were. So, Jesus did not obey so that you don't obey. No. But he died so that you don't die. Now, I'll show you something again. Our salvation was obtained with a very high price, which is the blood of Jesus. Jesus could not be bought righteous and obedient. This is consequent on the perfect purity of his nature. But his death was not necessarily a consequence. You know, consequence of maybe sinful life, disobedience, whatever. No, that was not why he died. Is that okay? 
Now, as the Lord of God can claim only the death of a transgressor, for such only forfeit their right to life, it is therefore the greatest miracle of all that Christ could die whose life was never forfeited. Listen to me, I said in the beginning. When you sin, it's like you forfeited your life. Is that okay? Right. You forfeited your life. You have exchanged your life in place of, how do I put it now? Your rebellion, your disobedience, took you to the place of death. So you forfeited your life as a sinner. You can get it back. That's the way it was. The wages of sin is dead, period. Right? Now Jesus came. But the greatest miracle in all of this is this. Just like you were supposed to forfeit your life, he forfeited his life but took it again, which is something that you could not do. So now, in John ten seventeen, what did we read there? He said, Therefore doth my father love me, because I laid down my life, that I might take it again. Did you get that? He did not lose his life, but you as a sinner, you lost your life. Or you could lose your life, but for him, no. He has the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. That is the greatest miracle. So he died and resurrected. That you may have to have resurrection. Are we together? Good. So, just as sin requires such a death, we also see the greatness of God's mercy in providing the sacrifice required. It is therefore by Jesus' death, or obedience unto death, that we are saved, and not by His fulfilling any moral law. Let's get that right again. That's why I keep telling people, when you talk about the law of Moses, and you begin to say, we're living under grace, the law is finished, nothing more to be touched, I always ask this question. When the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, that was part of the Ten Commandments. When the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, that was part of the Ten Commandments. Am I correct? So did Jesus fulfill those laws so that you don't fulfill them? No. So when we come to the issue of moral laws, his death does not touch them. You are still responsible. I don't know if I get what I'm saying here. Thou shalt not steal, is still, thou shalt not steal. So we must know where that sacrifice ends. <laughs> I know this is hard for those of us who believe in this super, super grace. This is hard. Is that okay? Now, that is fulfilled the moral law, we know. That is why he was qualified to be our mediator. But we must take heed lest we attribute that obedience which was necessary consequence of his immaculate nature, his perfect nature. We belong to his passion and death. We must be careful not to think that what he did on the cross took our place in such a way that we are no longer obligated to obey any law. It is wrong. So when you say it is finished, you need to define what is finished. I don't know if you're following this. Now, this way, if you want to use the word free will, exchange of eternal goodness, and not even necessary consequence of incarnation, the doctrine of imputed righteousness of Christ is capable of great abuse. That's what I'm trying to drive at. 
To say that Christ's personal righteousness is imputed to every true believer is not scriptural. And I want to prove that to you. In terms of obedience of the law, the personal righteousness of Christ, he obeyed every law God gave, he obeyed every commandment God gave as far as his human nature was concerned. But that did not take your place that you don't obey what God says. Do you understand what I'm saying? He took your place in form of a lamb that was sacrificed. You died with him. But when it comes to personal obligation in terms of obedience to the laws, you owe God your responsibility. Christ did not finish that for you. Hallelujah. So say that you have fulfilled all righteousness for us, or in our said, if by this is meant the fulfillment of all moral duties, is neither scriptural nor true. That he has died in our stead is great, glorious, good news. Scriptural truth. That is, there is no redemption but through his blood. It's asserted beyond all contradiction in the word of God. We know that. But, there are multitude of duties, responsibilities, and laws which the moral law requires, which Christ never fulfilled in our stead. And never will. We have, for instance, various duties of domestic kind, like I was trying to say in the beginning. We belong solely to ourselves. In the relation of our relationship to parents, to husband, to wife, to male servant, and so on and so forth. Is that okay? The duty of a husband to the wife was not fulfilled by Christ. But it's a law that you must obey your husband. It's a law you must love your wife. It's a law you must obey your parents. Are you following what I'm talking about? Did Jesus fulfill that law that you don't have to obey your parents? No. Therefore, there's nothing finished there. You still have a duty. You have a responsibility. Am I communicating? The duty of our lives, our relationship with one another, was not taken by Christ. For instance, again, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's a law. Was it fulfilled by Christ? So that you don't have to love your neighbor? No. Are you getting what I'm saying here? Are you picking what I'm saying? I'm trying to get us to come to the place of knowing what was fulfilled and what was not fulfilled to know that it's just the beginning of the journey. So, you, 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 you have a lot of obligation. You have a lot of duties and laws to obey as far as the word of God is concerned. That shall not kill is still that shall not kill. Jesus did not fulfill the law of that shall not kill so that you go and kill people because it is finished. Are you, are you still with me? You try to kill, Romans 13 will come into play. The minister of God, Romans 13, will pick you up. Look at the police. Huh? You go to jail. So, will you go to the court and say, well, it is finished, that is why I did it. No. If you like, go and shout out, they will see jail you. Hallelujah. Are you with me here? All right. 
So that is what I'm dealing with. I make it to understand when you talk about imputed righteousness, not in relation to the issue of the obedience. You have to walk out. I think that's where the scripture Paul says, walk out your work, your own righteousness with fear and trembling. Walk it out. You know, that will live the life of a Christian. Hallelujah. I told us here when I was talking about the abuse of the cross. If you remember that. See, if a woman gets herself involved in all kind of relationship and she contacts aid, Jesus has died, but aid will still kill you. Am I correct? So what are we talking about now? It is finished. You are not going to shout, it is finished and aid will leave you. No. Except God is going to help you through prayers. But just, just shouting, it is finished and lose Live a loose life does not guarantee your health. Am I correct? Even your eating habits. So, when we say it is finished, we got to be careful. When we talk about imputed righteousness, we've got to understand the boundaries as to where that righteousness was imputed. we got to. Praise the Lord. You see, Paul... When he was speaking and they told him, don't you know he's a high priest? He said, I never knew he's a high priest. For the scriptures say, revive all the gods. The judges. Is that okay? He was still referring to the Old Testament. That was New Testament. But he was still referring to, because that's a moral obligation. It's a moral law. Praise the living God. So, the salvation we receive from God's free mercy through Christ binds us to live in a strict conformity to the moral law. That law which dictates our manners of life and the spirit by which they should be regulated and in which they should be performed. He who lives not in the due performance of every Christian duty, whatever faith he may profess, is either vile hypocrisy or a scandalous antinomia. I don't want to show you what antinomia means. It's when Jesus made a statement and said, Mighty chapter 7, I will say, Go away from me, you workers of iniquity. Right? That iniquity antinomia or antinomia, meaning you did what you did without law. Now, the kind of grace we are preaching today. Is completely antinomian. Now, what or who is an antinomian? Someone who holds that under the gospel of grace, the moral laws are no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary to salvation. One who rejects a socially established morality is an antinomian. I'm trying to say, when you say it is finished, you can't say it is finished and then become a thief. The moral law in the society says, Thou shalt not steal. Whether in the Bible or in the society that men are living in. Take time to study Exodus 22. Begin to see how God has analyzed what happens to a thief. Is that okay? Thou shalt not kill. 
you can't say because you are under grace, therefore you must kill. No. But that shall not kill is a law in that which you call the Old Testament. So any man who is preaching the grace that seems to exclude moral obligation to the law is an antinomia. Are you there with me? I want you to pick it because it's very important. When you, when you preach the gospel of grace to the point where you have no responsibilities at all towards mankind, even towards God, you are simply an antinomia. And that is largely what we're preaching today. It is finished. Huh? Praise the living God. I think I was in Kenya when they were telling me of a brother. You know, in relation to this, and uh, they have the conviction, you, 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 I mean, it is finished, there is nothing. So, now, he went to a hotel, a bar, and he got drunk. Accidentally, he was a minister. And saw misbehaving. Because it is finished. You see what I'm saying here? When you don't stay by the rules, you see, the Christian or Christianity as a body has its own rules that govern sex. Am I right? When you say all these things are no longer there, you are just practicing antinomia. That's what you're saying. So lawlessness is not part of grace. Praise the living God. Therefore, you can't say imputed righteousness excludes you from obeying rules and regulations. No. Okay. Let me just quickly, don't forget what I said about antinomia. Antinomia is somebody who holds that under the gospel of grace, the moral laws are no use or obligation because of faith. Faith alone is necessary to salvation. Is somebody who rejects socially established morality. It's an antinomia. Is that okay? Right. Now, I would just want to run quickly through 30 major accomplishments of the cross. 30 major. If you want to talk about the accomplishment of the cross, we can write the whole book. But I want to give you just 30 major facts. You'll be able to see where the cross seemingly accomplish its own goal. But salvation continues on the other side. Amen? The first thing you see there, looking at the scriptures, going through the passage of the Bible, this is the first thing you're going to see. For instance, in Romans 3 verse 25, he so said, for him, God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. If you read our scripture, Romans chapter 3 verse 25. God set forth the Jesus Christ, put not the blood. Let's read that. Romans 3 verse 25. Through the blood of Jesus, in our faith in his blood, we have to believe that the blood becomes a propitiation. So who God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood 
to declare his righteousness for remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So what did the blood do? Forgiving our sins, especially our past sins. Is that okay? Right. But our faith in the blood makes us righteous. That's what we're saying now. Number two, Romans 5 verse 6. I just want to run through 13 major accomplishments of the, of, of, of the cross. Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for what? The ungodly. Somebody died in your place. And that is the cross. I'm talking about the accomplishment of the cross. Getting facts on that. Did you get that? Somebody died in your place and that is Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 10. This number 3 fact now. Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. By the death of his son, much more be reconciled, we shall be saved by what? His life. Meaning, we were not saved or fully saved by the cross. When he says shall, he speaks of that which is future. Am I correct? Good. Why? Because salvation is spirit, soul, and body. So he did not finish on the cross. But what did the cross do? It reconciled us to God. Amen? Number four point, Ephesians 1 verse 7. Ephesians 1 verse 7, the major accomplishment of the cross, what I'm trying to analyze. In what we have re- redemption through his, for his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The forgiveness of sins. Where did you find that? On the cross. Amen? Redemption here means we are brought back from slavery. Praise the Lord. Ephesians 5 verse number 2. Ephesians 5 verse number 2. The Bible says... And we walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smiling savor. An offering. That is the cross. Sacrifice on the cross. He gave himself for us. That is, he took our place. So, instead of us hanging on the cross... He hung on the cross and became a sacrifice, an offering, smelling silver before God. Number six, Colossians 1, verse 14. Colossians 1, verse 14. He won't we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Same thing which we read before. I'm trying to make you see the scripture that talks about a cross. And what the cross accomplished for us. Number seven. Colossians 1 20 and 22. Colossians 1 20 and 22. 
and having made peace through what? The blood of his cross. See that? By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be both things in earth or things in heaven. Reconciliation. Watch that. He made peace between man and all things that were in this array that were away from God. He made peace through the blood of his cross. Praise the Lord. Number 8. 1 Timothy 2 verse number 6. 1 Timothy 2 verse number 6. It says, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom for all to be testified in due time. For all means, all mankind. Just like the Bible we say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he equally says, in Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen? Praise the Lord. Are you there with me? Alright. Number nine points. It says, let's look at Second Timothy 2, I mean Titus 2 verse 14. Titus 2, verse 14. Good. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Did you get that? He gave himself for us, that might do what? He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good work. That's what the cross accomplished. Number 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By the which we, we, are, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, we are not talking about continuous bringing of animals like the Jewish people were doing. Where you bring a lamb every year. We are not talking about that. This is done once and for all. Amen? Praise the Lord. Are we here? Okay, number 11 point, Hebrews 9.28. Hebrews 9.28, I'm just picking scriptures to tell us about what happened on the cross. The effect of the cross, the accomplishment of the cross, is what I'm talking about. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear, second time without sin, Unto salvation. Did you get that? What happened was offered as a lamb to bear what? The sins of many. That's what the cross did. Praise the living God. Now, when you see the word to appear a second time, it has nothing to do with what the church 
teaches in relation to the word second coming. Appear a second time, I'm not going to do with second coming. Now, if you want to see the first appearing, you go to verse 24. Hebrews 9, verse 24. I'll show you. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figure of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Can you see that? So what is this? Like when he rose from the grave, Mary was to touch him and he said, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father and to your father. But go and tell the brethren what you have seen that I have risen. What he meant to tell Mary was, if you look at the whole Hebrew, chapter 9, he's dealing with the priesthood. Now, the priest, any time the animal is sacrificed, right, in the outer court, he takes the blood in. Now he sprinkled every article right there down to the most holy place and sprinkled the blood on the altar. And he comes out and bless the people. And then their sins are forgiven. They go back home. Next year he comes back to do the same thing. Are you listening to me? Good. So now, he rose, when we say he offered his blood once and for all. He has come in as a high priest. He goes to the most holy place. So when he told Mary, don't touch me, what he meant to say, I have not fulfilled that aspect of a priest to present the blood. Did you get that? So that is a false appearing, not when he was born. So this is the false appearing. So when you get to the second place, he talks about verse 28 now, which is called second times. Look at verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Bear, remember that? The body sins, he presented blood. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. So second time and first time. First time, verse 24. Second time, verse 28. What is that supposed to mean? That's what he said in the book of Matthew when he said, If you are ashamed of me, I shall be ashamed of you before my father and the angels. So here we are talking about the realm of glorification. Are you following what I'm saying now? So we are talking about a time when the sons of God will come to the realm of glory and you will be able to identify with you, be able to speak before you, I mean before God on your behalf, this one is qualified, he never was ashamed of me, he believed in my sacrifice, he's qualified to come into the place of glory. Are you done with me? So he's not talking about when he was born and then when he's going to come again, that's not what he's talking about. Second time is different from the word come again. And somebody was asking me the question last week, you know, from Lagos. There is no scripture that says second coming in the Bible. What you have is come again and second time. Second time has nothing to do with come again. Listen and listen closely. There is no word like second coming in the Bible. Go read it from Genesis to Revelation. You can see it. What you see is come again. In John 4, they say, I will come again. And listen, he came again on the day of Pentecost. This is why you see in Genesis 18, he told Abraham, I will come again to you. 
at the time of the season, and your wife shall bring forth or conceive. Is that okay? Now, nobody came, but we knew that Sarah got pregnant. Am I right? So if Sarah got pregnant and God said to her, when he comes again, that Sarah will be pregnant. That means, what happened? He came again. Is that okay? So, come again is not, it's a promise. And that is why you see, you read John 16, 17, you'll be able to see clearly what Jesus was talking about. When he comes again, the child to become the man-child. Praise the living God. Alright, so that is the point. I'm just trying to tell you what was accomplished on the cross. So, let's take the remaining two and then we are done for today. Um, Ephesians, go with me to Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. Uh, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Ephesians 2, verse 13, very quickly. And it says... But now in Christ Jesus, yeah, we were sometimes were far off and made nigh by what? The blood of Christ. The blood brought you together. Remember, he was dealing with the Gentiles in particular now. They were far away, they cannot approach God, they can't come to the most holy place or the holy place. In fact, there was a partition in the temple. So there was a place they can stay off and then they can come close to where the Jewish people were worshipping because they were Gentiles. But the Bible is saying by reason of the blood, this demarcation was removed so there's a common flow, an open hall. Praise the living God. And the last one I want to share with us is number 13, Revelation chapter 5 verse number 9. Revelation 5 verse number 9. And it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations. Go to verse 10. Verse 10 says, And hast made us Unto our God, kings and prince, and we shall reign on the earth forever. Did you get that? Praise the living God. So what happened with the blood? He redeemed us. He redeemed all men back to God. That is what the cross accomplished. But I'm saying, in the progression of the work of salvation, the cross did not finish everything. Amen? We still need to come on. Now I want to read the scripture. I want to tell you precisely. Can you go to Romans chapter 3 for me? Go to Romans 3. I mean Romans chapter 1, 3 and 4. Romans 1, 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, was supposed to me. He was born as a human being, according to the flesh, was the seed of David. Because Second Samuel chapter seven verse twelve says, "When you finish your days out of that line, I will raise." Remember that a king that shall sit on your throne, your seed 
shall sit on your throne. And then Peter saying that on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, made it clearly, you know, before all men, that Jesus was that seed that was about to sit on the throne of his father David. Are you there with me? Well, look at the next thing. Go back. No, I'm still. Don't worry about this. Just go. Yeah, he was promising David this. And when that day will fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of the barrels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now he was talking about Christ here. That's what he said, according to the seed of David was made in the flesh. Is that okay? So now, go to Romans again, chapter 1, and go to verse 4. I'm showing you the two, if I will use the word, the two faces of Christ. Romans 1, verse 4. Okay, take it from the 3 so that I can get the sequence. 3 again. It says, Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Look at the next thing. And he says, verse 4. Go to verse 4. And declared to be what? The Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? The resurrection from the dead. So it is when he rose from the dead that he truly assumed his position as the Son of God. Did you get that? And it's done by the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now it is in this condition as the Son of God, in quote, that he could enter to meet with the disciples with the doors and the window locked because they were afraid of persecution. This is the body of glory, not the body of verse 3. The body of verse 3 was the one that can go to the cross. But this body of glory, you can do nothing to it. That is true sonship. And if you know that the Bible says the first fruit among them that are dead is the firstborn among many brethren, that simply means whoever he is right now, that is what we are supposed to be at the end of the day. Because we have the same blood and the same family. The same father. Is that, you don't really get what I'm talking about. He is our sinner brother. So his nature is definitely going to be what? Our nature. So then you can't tell me that the cross accomplished this. No. That's what I'm saying. Are you following me? Yeah. Before people get confused about what is David's teaching, what is David saying? I am saying the cross did not finish the work of salvation. Now let me just read this, but we're going to touch it again. Go back now, Romans chapter 8. And give me verse 23 to 24. The Bible says, creation is waiting. Remember that? Groaning and so on. And it says, not only they, that's creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruit of the Spirit. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Our speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's the first fruit of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for what? The adoption to wit. What is that supposed to mean? The redemption of our bodies. 
We're waiting for the redemption of our body. The cross did not accomplish this. Praise the living God. He only paved the way. He set a journey on course for us to keep on moving. And this is where we finally are coming into. If you look at verse 24, it will tell you something. Verse 24 says, For we are saved by hope. Is that okay? It's about hope that is seen, it's not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he hear hope for? We are saved by hope. And if you, if you think you, you've gotten it, then you have no need to hope for it. But as long as you stay, I was speaking to a friend, and it was almost like, oh my God, I just have to end it. He was say, oh, Pastor David, it is finished. I said, what is finished? You tell me what is finished. As long as, oh, for me, everything is, is finished. I only need to be awoken to it. No, 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 no. You can't beat the gun. Listen, you have to have Passover. You have to have Pentecost. You have to have what? Tabernacles. You can't beat the gun. Amen? When it was time for Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. Therefore, there have to be a time for the Feast of Tabernacle. For us to put on a glorified body. We are not going to escape this. We are not going to fit it and get into it. No. Somebody would ask me, what about Enoch? Maybe you take time to read the Bible again. In Hebrews, it says, All this were justified whereby faith, but all died. And that included Enoch. Go read it again. Say, all these heroes of faith, they died not having received the promise. Did you read that? Hallelujah. So we need to go revisit what happened to Enoch. What it means that Enoch walked with God and was not. We need to go think about that again. Because the Bible clearly says all these died. Not having received the promise. For God has a better thing for us. For they without us cannot be made perfect. Praise the living God. So what am I saying? The cross accomplished great things for us. We are not diminishing, we are not removing, we are not devaluing the work of the cross. We are only trying to say the cross did not finish everything that God wants to do with mankind. Praise the living God. Because ultimately this is not the body that God intended us to live. Like I told the brother, as long as you still need food to survive, as long as you need blood to be pumped in your body, you have not attained to what God has the full inheritance must come to the place where blood is not what survives you, but spirit. Praise the living God. God bless you. I'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dr. David Ogaga. We know you have been blessed by this station. You can share this message with your friends and loved ones. For more information, inquiries, and free downloads, please visit www.davidogaga.org or you can send us an email admin at gkai.net. God bless you.